Hello and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road, and hopefully things are going well over in your neck of the woods. And there's nothing too much here uh, going on. We're wrapping up our harvest, getting the cover crop in, and uh, hey, it is what it is, right? So God willing, the cover crop uh, gets some rain. Of course, I spin it on there. And I know that um, Ron Learn had sent me a, a, an email a few weeks ago when I had mentioned about me broadcasting my cover crop, and he was suggesting that I get a culty packer to try to get a better stand-up sooner since I broadcast it. And, and uh, I think that's an, you know, it's an excellent idea, and a couple of other people over the years have suggested something like that. And I never really looked into it because <laughs> for the simple reason being that, that if you get, you know, if you get some rain or like you get a, a, a day or two of just a drizzle that the cover crop comes up quicker than it did if it was in the ground. But anyway, but I cut down and this is a, this is a, uh, a response to Ron and thank you for his note. Thank you for your note. And maybe you know this answer. And if you do, please get back to me. Excuse me, my <clears throat> throat is is acting up on me again. But I just cut down my stalk, so I have a lot of trash in the field. So when I spin the cover crop on, to a certain extent, I mean the seed falls, it, it, you know, falls down to the ground between the trash. But I have, but I, I cut down my corn stalks, and depending upon when I rotary cutter, so I have all of that trash laying on the field. And depending upon when I cut it down, how soon after harvest I cut it down. Lots of times the corn stalks, at least in one of the fields, are green when I cut them down. So I don't know what would a culty packer work in that environment or would i just be pressing the corn stalks more to the ground so the way it is right now the seed seems to uh, appears to be falling all over the place uh, falls on the corn stalks off the corn stalks and when it rains it washes it down in between the corn stalks and i do get a good stand but i don't know i've never used a culty packer so so ron if you have that answer email me or anybody else if you have that answer please let me know because uh I would like to uh, possibly explore that. So who knows? But uh, God willing, we'll get a good stand up this year. And I had King's Agri Seed, who's, who I've been dealing with through Lima Farms over in Hillsboro, New Jersey. He's a dealer. And they made a custom blend for me. This year is my first year where I had my own custom blend. So I feel like, oh man, I, was a, I feel like I'm, I'm somebody now, right? I got my own custom blend. Yeah, I wanted them to make me a blend of Triticale, the Triticale, have you probably pronounced it Triticale? Triticale and, and uh, Crimson Clover and Daikon or Tillage Radish. So those are the three components, the three different uh, cover crops I wanted in my mix and they said they could excuse me mix it up for me and they did so we'll, that's on there and we'll see what i'm gonna get i should say i'm gonna get that on there and we'll see what what happens with that so hopefully god willing it works out well but interesting as an aside and i always say this i'm no agronomist even though we did not have a good marketable yield today for all the reasons i said in previous show episodes of this show but we had zero, zero uh, earworms. And somebody had, and we don't spray for anything, for any worms or any any insects whatsoever. We're a pesticide-free farm. And, uh, excuse me, but the, um, 
somebody had told me a few years, a number about five or six years ago, that if you plan to triticale, that it is poisonous to the earworm larvae as they overwinter in the ground. I don't know whether that's true or not, but every, and then again, if somebody who's an agronomist, well, anybody knows more about agronomy than me, the guy in a, in a supermarket does, but if if you have heard that or know that there's any truth to it, but all I can say is empirically, and I've said this on the show before, is that ever since I started to plant triticale, as a cover crop, my earworm infestation without using any chemicals has gone down and down. And last year, so which would be the cover crop I took off this year, I planted 100% triticale. So I did 100 pounds per acre of that. And uh, lo and behold, I mean, even with a late season crop, I had uh, you know zero, zero, literally zero earworms. So maybe there is something to that. Uh, and if anybody out there knows anything more, about that i would be glad to um to hear what you have to say and learn because this is a two-way street hopefully i'm teaching you something and i look forward to you teaching me because everybody knows something that somebody else doesn't and uh like i said even whatever i'm certainly i'm certainly not a know-it-all and my wife reminds me of that all the time so that is that and um i'm going to also ask to uh please send me an email at hotrodfarmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and uh, let me know where you listen from so I could put some pins in my map with your name on it. And I know on last week's show, I didn't have the opportunity to sort through the emails and I apologize for that and I apologize again this week, but I am going to do that. I have a number of people and if you did send me an email and you didn't hear your name as a, as a shout out yet, please know that it was not lost. It was my... Um, my inefficiencies that did not collect them and organize them in time so i want to try to put three or four up every week for those people i don't want to do all you know do 10 uh, you know shout out of 10 people because you're not tur- you're not clicking into this show to hear just the shout outs but i do i will definitely give everybody a shout out so i thank you for your patience with me and then on today's show the episode is going to be about um, machining a cylinder head and I think that's an important element, and obviously not the procedure, well, I guess in part the procedure of machining a cylinder head, well, but what you need to know as a consumer of buying cylinder head machine work is probably a better way for me to say it, and we're going to discuss that, and then obviously we're going to have a toolbox test question, and Tex Rubinowitz some Ripsaw Records, when you hear him singing Hot Rod Man, you know it's time to put your thinking cap on, and then we also have a letter here, and let me see what that is shuffling my papers here on the desk and it is from frank frank in arizona i don't know where in arizona and he has a 2008 chevy pickup truck with a 5.3 v8 that's misfiring so we're going to get to that at the end of the show but without any further ado we are going to get into uh into machining a cylinder head and uh excuse me this throat in mine and my sinus is a uh, uh, very very bad for some reason so you know in essence the cylinder head is the most commonly serviced core component of an engine because if you have the engine block you have the rotating assembly and the rotating assembly is, is the pistons the connecting rods and the crankshaft and then you have the cylinder head and uh the cylinder head is is the part of that 
that engine that is going to be serviced the most, but the goal is not to have to service it, right? To never have to take the head off an engine. But out of those three areas, the cylinder head is definitely the one that's going to see them, the potential for the most service. And this is in part due to its complexity. You have the, even on a pushrod engine, you have the operation of the valves, you have the rocker arms and maybe a shaft, you have valve springs, you have locks, retainers, you have guides. And so all of those components are there, you know, along with the fact that that, that the cylinder head is unique because it's exposed both to the liquid coolant and the majority of the combustion heat because the combustion chamber resides in the cylinder on a spark ignition engine and in most diesel engines the chamber itself resides in the top of the piston but the, the cylinder head is the roof of that combustion chamber so it's going to see a high level of heat and then also it's not common for the cylinder head to be removed due to a head gasket failure so nothing happened to the head but the head gasket failed but I have to honestly say, and I've spoken about this before on this show, that if you, you know, a head gasket failure is usually the result of severe overheating or a lack of maintenance from not changing the antifreeze or, or the diesel engine, adding the necessary supplemental ingredients to keep that coolant operating properly. So, so keep that in mind that if, if you blow a head gasket, historically, that is because of a lack of maintenance or something happened and you cooked the engine the hose started to leak and you kept the engine the thermostat stuck and you cooked the engine but if you didn't cook it then for the most part the cylinder head gasket failed because of a lack of maintenance now if you have some of these guys who have these diesel engines with the tuners and they turn up the boost that's a different story but uh, um, then you, you blew it through cylinder pressure. But anyway, but if you didn't, then then you have to look at a mirror because nine chances out of 10, you were guilty. And what'll happen is that there'll be the added, you'll say to me, well, and I went through this many times on the show, is that the, the coolant, excuse me, the coolant is more, is more to it than than not freezing, and there's there's a lot of chemical components in it that stop it that that, that keep corrosion at bay and keep electrolysis at bay, and those those chemical components those additives get consumed during the heating and cooling cycle that the coolant sees in an engine, and they get consumed. The, the ability to not freeze isn't altered, but they can the additive package becomes consumed, and then often electrol elect electrolytic effect occurs and that electrolytic effect actually eats the head gas right and so if you keep the coolant if you keep the coolant up to snuff you will most likely never have to take the cylinder head off your engine but regardless of why it's coming off let's talk about the proper procedures now not of removing the cylinder head the proper procedures what you need to do once that head is off so now <clears throat> Keep in mind that due to the environment that the cylinder head operates in, that it's that it's paramount, especially today, that when you bring it to the machine shop, that it needs to be checked for cracks, especially in the area between the valves before any machine work is performed. So they call that in the cylinder head the area between the valves. That thin that thin little region is called the bridge, like a bridge, like the Golden Gate Bridge. It's called a bridge. 
and a and a good machinist is always going to uh, a good machinist is going to assume that if the engine is being rebuilt or the head uh, the head alone is removed, then at least one time in its life, all right, it has been brought to a dangerously high elevated coolant temperature, and that is, makes it a good candidate for potential cracking. Now, the thing to also keep in mind is that the equipment operator, whether it's a car, truck, farm track, the combine, backhoe, whatever it may be, may never have been aware of that because the because the liquid coolant temperature may, ne- may never have spiked on the gauge. So keep that in mind. But the, the, the complete engine or one cylinder could have been exposed to ex- excessive heat. And this could be from lugging it, hard work on a lean mixture, a dirty injector, what have you. So the thing is that you need to always, before you put any money into a cylinder head, the machine shop needs to check it for cracking. And specifically, a lot of these newer engines and, and sadly a lot of diesel engines like C, uh, C15 cats and a lot of them, the, the cylinder heads today are thin wall castings to save weight. You would think of a big, well, a big semi truck, right? 80,000 pounds. They're looking to save weight. Yes, they do look to save weight. And the, 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 uh, the, the less the components weigh collectively, then the, the more the truck could carry or the tractor or what have you. So keep that, you know, keep that in mind. So if any cracks, so the first step when you bring it to a machine shop, if the guy says, so what you need to do is query the machine shop. Say, what are you going to do with this cylinder? that? And if he says to you, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to check it for cracks. Then that's that's a good first. That's the first step you need to do. And then if there are any cracks that are that are found, then we have to decide whether they could be repaired and employing what technique. There's many different techniques that could be used to repair a crack in the cylinder. And one of them is called pinning, like with a like with a pin, P-I-N-N-I-N-G. There's stitch welding. There's a there's epoxy what is traditional welding that could be applied to make to repair that head but be prepared since some cracks not every crack can be repaired due to its location and its nature so in these cases another zone that is required whether it's a used casting or a new casting so keep that in mind you know if you have an engine and specific with the gasoline stuff it's not too bad but you have some some guys have older farm tractors diesel or gasoline and they're using them on the farm and they crack the head and they look to buy a used head you got to whoever you buy that used head for they have to guarantee to you that it is not cracked because you could just keep going on the same merry-go-round so once the head once the cell on the head is determined that you deem that it's usable now we need to go and we're going to talk about today the these proper steps to recondition that cylinder head. And the operative word there is proper. You know, just like doing a, a tune-up. You do a tune-up on an engine, right? You could throw whatever, six cylinders or six spark plugs in it and an air filter and you call that, and they call that a tune-up. Or you could do six spark plugs. You could put anti-seize compound on the spark plugs. You could put dielectric grease inside the, 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 the boot wires. You could check the coil. You could tighten up the intake manifold, clean the carburetor, adjust the carburetor, fuel injector, clean the throttle body, uh, clean the injectors, uh, do, all, do all these different things. So change the fuel filter, right? Uh, check check the PCV valve, to, and it's still considered under the guise of a tune-up. So most people, when they bring a head to a machine shop, 
They have to be an educated consumer. You have to be an educated farmer because you want to make sure that this shop is doing everything that it's supposed to do to prepare this head because you don't want to pull this head off twice, even if it's a little a four-cylinder gas engine, you want to pull this head off twice. If you're going to make the investment in it, then if it's a big diesel, you certainly don't want to pull it off twice. And if it's a piece of equipment that you need to operate your business, this is, you know, you have it, it's down, we got to do it right. And as I started to say again, sadly, a lot of shops do not do it properly. And they may not do it properly through ignorance, or they may not do it properly through a profit motive. And I'll leave it at that. A lot of this stuff is so price competitive that if you were to go to shop A and they said they're going to do everything that I said here, that I'm going to say in this episode of of Idle Chatter, then that's going to cost you a lot more than a guy who's just going to pop in some valves and do a a quick valve grind job and, and, and let it go. So the thing is that you need to be familiar with the shop and you need to ask them their procedures and what's going on. So the first thing that I want to discuss, we check the cylinder head and these are in no particular order, but they will be done in some order by the machine shop because depending upon the machinist, he's first going to eyeball everything. So you're going to pop the valves out. You're going to look at the seats. You're going to take the guides. And even if you don't measure them at that particular point, you're going to wiggle the valve. There's a lot of tactile feel that will happen with the cylinder head before they start to machine it after they do the crack detection test. And the crack detection test could be with Magnaflux or could be with a die. There's different ways to do it. So, but, uh, or pressure te- te- check on it, so what have you. But as long as they check for cracks, I don't want to, you're not going into the cylinder head business. So based upon the eyeballs and the tactile stuff the guy feels is going to decide where he's going to go with the next step. But, so I'm going to go through these steps in a logical order, but the machine shop that you're working with may not do them in this particular order, and that is fine. There's nothing wrong with as long as they do all these steps and don't, and don't cut any, 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 any of them out. So the first thing we're going to talk about is resurfacing. You know, every cylinder head must have the following surfaces both visually inspected and checked for warpage. And the way you check for warpage is with a straight edge and a feeler gauge. So they are the head gasket surface, the intake manifold mounting surface, and also the face that attaches to the exhaust manifold. So all of those areas have the potential for warping and twisting. So if any of those are warped beyond this allowable specification, then the gasket is not going to seal. And usually, as far as the, the, the intake manifold side and the exhaust manifold side, is that the, they're probably not going to give you an exact specification, but what you need to do whenever you're, you're measuring something for warpage, what is going to happen is that you need to determine the warpage, and then you need to measure the thickness of the gasket that you're going to use, and then also lots of times, excuse me, with a gasket, they'll tell you the compression thickness. But if it's something like an intake manifold gasket, exhaust manifold gasket, they're not going to give you the compression thickness. So let's say arguably the face where the exhaust manifold bolts up is 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 warped 15 thousandths and the gasket is 30 thousandths, then you know that that exhaust manifold is going to seal them and not leak now if the warpage is fifteen thousandths and the gasket is twenty thousandths all right 
then you know, then there's a very good potential that that gasket will not seal because with that warpage, you're not going to have an even clamping load against that gasket. So that's where you have to be a machinist, you have to be a mechanic. So, and it's very simple, you need to use a straight edge, then you put a straight edge on the surface, and then you go underneath it with a feeler gauge, and in theory, if there's no warpage, you should have not be able to get any feeler gauge underneath there, and, with, and then you measure the warpage, the estimated warpage with the feeler gauge, and it needs to be substantially less than the thickness of the gasket, because the gasket needs to have some sort of compression to it some sort of contact for the seal so using that exhaust manifold numbers that i pulled out of the air you have fifteen thousandths warpage it's twenty thousandths gasket all right it's it, it'll most likely seal up i'm not going to deny that without 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 uh cutting that side of the head it's going to seal up but may but will most likely will happen after many thermal excursions heating cooling heating cooling heating cooling that that's that exhaust manifold gasket will blow out so when you put it back together it doesn't leak and then depending upon the use of the engine then shortly thereafter it blows out whether shortly thereafter is next week or next year but it's not because it's oh, it's hanging on its ceiling by a thread so now you know, keep in mind that, and somebody may be thinking, is, oh, hot rod, you're full of it, that some diesel engine manufacturers don't recommend machining this cylinder head deck surface. Now, the deck surface is the part that goes to the block, all right, and, requ- and require complete replacement. But in actual practice, all right, you will find that if the warpage of the deck is not too excessive, a good machinist will be able to correct it with the proper procedure. And I do not know personally but i may be wrong of any gasoline engine that would be found on a farm that its manufacturer rejects decking of the cylinder so now but you have to determine that warp but you can't deck the hell out of it because it's all warped so the thing is that then again there's where your measurements come into play and the machine shop is supposed to do this but you could do this on the farm all right straight edge and feeler gauge you don't need to have any special tools other than a straight edge and a feeler gauge but cylinder head resurfacing the procedure itself there's a number of different ways that you could do it and then they're all considered commercially acceptable so and you'll find that you know like anything in life each machinist likes a certain way a particular method that he uses and that is fine as long as the end result is correct the standards the standard procedure that most use are a milling machine a wet grinder or a brooch so they're gonna they're going to the going to deck that head and what decking that head means is they're going to make the the surface that baits to the engine block completely flat with a minimum of variation all right so the next thing that you need to have done with this head is you're going to need to service the valve guides so now the valve guide is the area that's often neglected in an inexpensive cylinder head service right the guy's going you're going to do a quick quick job they're inexpensive service you know so the valve guides as you know but just for those who may not know is the hole in the cylinder head that the valve stem travels through so there are two different types of valve guides so there's an inter- integral guide and a replaceable guide and an integral guide is usually found on a cast iron cylinder head. It's going to be rare to find that on an aluminum head. I, you won't find it on an aluminum head. All right, so, and it's a raised boss 
that that has a passage and they gun drill in the factory when they build the song that they gun drill through it and it's part of the song that had casting now in contrast to that a replaceable guide may also feature a cast embossed but has an insert that is usually made from bronze that controls the movement of the valve. So you may see a boss there and then they put it, they, they have a insert that they press in there, a bronze guide. And that's what you said, it has bronze guides in the cylinder head. Now on a, on a cast iron head without a guide and it just has the boss, they usually harden that material to some extent they may do induction hardening or what have you so it doesn't so it doesn't have excessive wear or they may have it cast with is more dense material there but if you have a worn valve guide in the cast iron head then what the shop will do is they will they will hone that out and they will put an insert in there so now there'll be a a a, bra- a bronze type of guide into the cast iron head now the valve guides as I said, often overlooked, but they are very important. So not only does it guide the valve, as it says, in its proper path, that it's not wiggling around all over the place, but for oil control from getting into the cylinder bore. So if you have worn valve guides, not only is the valve walking around and moving around, but you're going to pass a lot of oil there. And you know, and each engine is going to have a specification for what they call the valve stem to guide clearance. So there'll be a spe- now an experienced machinist is going to know more or less what that specification is if it's a common engine. So it's called valve stem to guide clearance. So if the guide or the valve has ex- excessive clearance, it's going to be mandatory, right? You're not going to be able to get away from this with a good job that it's brought back the specification before this before you take that zone then put it back on the engine so now to contrast that if the guide is too tight the valve may stick when the engine is extremely hot and this is especially common on an exhaust valve under load so you have an engine so let's say oh, i always make the make the example you're pulling a a a, 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 a strip till you in a big strip till you on a hot day right and you really work in the engine the, the part of your field's got a little berm there you going up the berm so the exhaust valve is getting very hot if that valve guide the stem clearance is too tight and that the valve stem expands it's very possible that valve is going to stick open which which would be the exhaust valve it could be intake holes but historically it's the exhaust because it's exposed to the heat more heat and then the piston comes up boom and the best case scenario it bends the valve worst case scenario it breaks the head off the valve and kicks it through the side of the block and not good all right so it's very important that that the machine shop checks and confirms that a valve guide clearance for oil control for the wobbliness of the valve where it's not going to go onto the seat and if it's too tight then to to uh to open up that clearance to the proper specification all right so now what what happens also is that you, agricultural engines they're for the most part they're low rpm engines and many shops will come and tell you because it's a low rpm engine that if the guide has excessive clearance instead of putting an insert they're going to use a procedure called knurling and what knurling does is recovers some of the additional clearance caused by excessive wear so what how they do it is with a special arbor and this arbor is used to produce a, what they call a spiral groove with raised plateau so it kind of like cuts in there and pushes some material up 
It's called knurling, and that decreases the inner diameter of the guide. So it's kind of, unless you actually saw this procedure and saw the tool. So by knurling it, you're actually pushing some of the material up and, and tightening up the guide. So it's called knurling the valve guides. And that's a common procedure on a low RPM engine. So you have an agricultural engine, but at this particular point, my contention is that I don't like knurling the guides. That's me. I mean, if you got the head off, you're doing it. If it's a six-cylinder engine and eight-cylinder engine, I mean, you know, let, let them hone it out and, and and put inserts in. That's the proper way to do it. Right? If it's like a parade engine, an antique tractor or something that you're not going to run long and you're going to drive it on and off the trailer or maybe possibly, you know, the, the difference between doing it right and doing it, doing it, what we used to say in the East Coast, Bedford Avenue. There was a street in Brooklyn called Bedford Avenue, and my, and I don't know what happened there in Bedford Avenue, Brooklyn, New York. I mean, I'm not from Brooklyn, I'm from Jersey, on the farm, but we had this saying, a Bedford Avenue job, and a Mickey Mouse job, so it's like a taxi cab style repair, but if you got the sewn the head off, don't Mickey Mouse this and try to save $100 there, $50 there, it's just going to end up biting you, but anyway, but if the, if the shop says to you, look, I can knurl the guides, and it's application specific, like I said, if you have an antique tractor, you have something you do, you just mow a little bit of wit, and the guy says, well, I can knurl the guides, I don't want to spend a lot of money putting this in there, well, that's a decision that you could, that that you could make and uh you know it's conceivably you could get years of trouble free service from that but i don't know i i just i don't like to do things that way but there's a lot of engines that are running around for years with knurled guides but as i said the preferred method is with an with an integral guide is to bore it out bore the worn guide out so it could accept the bronze liner insert and this is going to be far superior method for a heavy duty engine and in relation to the tire cylinder head service the cost is minimal so you know like then again look at the use of it if it's going to be an engine that you're going to put under a lot of even if it's a let's say it's an old grain truck and you're going to be using it to haul grain to the elevator then you know you don't want to have neural guides on it but like I said, that's my own opinion. All right, so we'll leave it at that. But it is it is a commercially acceptable way of doing things. So another approach, right? If you have if you have a worn valve guide, would be to hold to hone the guide to the next available valve stem dimension. That and then if the cylinder head is going to be fit with new valves. So the thing basically is is that if you have an integral guide in the cylinder head, or you have an antique engine, and you are going to to, and you need to get that clearance proper you could actually hone the the guide out and then when you buy the new valves if you're buying new valves then you could look to see if they have a a a, a, a thicker valve stem so a, a larger valve stem dimension and then you work the numbers that way to get your your valve stem to guide clearance and this way you don't have to put inserts in it but that would be if you're buying new valves and you could get a valve that has that the stem is a larger stem usually for most automotive type of applications you could get that probably for some older farm tractors you could get that i don't know about some diesel engines but it's an acceptable procedure because what you're doing is you're putting a thicker valve stem in there 
and you're getting your clearance that way but you but you have to remember that that guide is going to have to be honed out to the proper dimension to maintain that that valve stem to guide clearance all right if the old valves are going to plan to be reused then this is certainly not a cost-effective approach because that, that you're going to you have to go either with the knurling or you have to go with the inserts all right so now if the cylinder head was made with replaceable guides then they just need to be pressed out and new ones installed to bring the clearance back to specification. So if it's made ready or been serviced with replace with replaceable guides in there, they shop presses them out and installs new ones. But keep in mind that when you put new guides in, even if, like I said, even if it had had replaceable guides, the shop still needs to check that clearance on each on each valve, and lots of times they'll have a special hone that they'll run in there because the one guide is a little bit tighter than the other. So it's not just like you put it in there like a new tire and away you go happy motoring. You still have to check at that clearance and that the and the valve stem to guide clearance needs to be checked on every valve not just one and then let it go all right so that's a little bit of a time-consuming process now the next thing we're going to talk about are the valves and seats the intake and the exhaust valves in an agricultural farm engine they endure more abuse than you think so here's some basic facts and i did some math so within 15 minutes of working in the field, the valves, and I wrote this down so I'm reading it, the valves have opened and closed more than 10,000 times, all while, all while being exposed to the stress of spring tension and combustion heat that can reach 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit locally for a short amount of time. So those valves are going up, and that's in 15 minutes. So figure if your tractor's got 3,000 hours, 4,000 hours, 10,000 hours on your car engine, your pickup truck, and there's 100,000, 200, 300,000 miles, that those valves have been exposed to quite a bit of stress. Now, do a lot of people don't recognize this, but due to the environment that the valves and the seat, the seat is the area that the valve closes against, and that's part of the cylinder that is the seat. The valves and seat, they distort, they wear, and they actually recess from the count, the constant pounding, because that valve pounds goes boom, 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 boom. You don't hear it, right? And also another factor is that it's common for the valves to actually pit from the from white hot very very hot white hot the white hot is beyond red hot all right white hot carbon deposits and believe it or not that they're chemically attacked from the byproducts of combustion so the valves and the seats are extremely important in when you have the cylinder head removed so the wear the wear areas of a valve that need to be confirmed are the stem diameter the tip and an area called the margin now the margin on the valve is the region that is just below the last angle and before the face of the valve so if you were to look at the margin it's almost it's it's almost like the spine of a book so the margin the purpose of the margin on the valve is used to keep the valve both physically and thermally stable so it's it's to remove heat and also to transfer heat and to keep the valve from from moving so when it goes into the seat it's not moving around all right so now if the margin is worn then the valve should not be put back into service 
it will be it, <clears throat> it's it will be very susceptible if you, with a worn margin for warping and burning shortly thereafter because what will happen is if you don't have that margin to help guide that valve and to release the heat yeah you could put it back into service but what's going to happen is that you've taken away all its its heat sink capabilities and 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 ability to seal properly so it's not it's not going to uh, to last long especially on an engine that's under load so now the margin we're still talking about the margin and other regions if they're in specifications then the valves the valve can be resurfaced to cut the angles so there's angles on the valve itself and they marry with the angles on the seat so now the angles they're placed on both the valve and the seat as i said and that they use not only for cylinder sealing but to direct and promote airflow into and out of the cylinder. So a lot of people don't realize that if you're a hot rod farmer and you port the cylinder or do what they call a multi-angle valve job, a three-angle valve job, a five-angle valve job, that's what's being spoken about. So poor valve angles, though they may seal, will cost the engine power and fuel efficiency. So the thing is that you want to ask the machine shop, or what are you going to do with the valve angles? How are you going to work the valve angles? And there's different ways. Some people grind them with stones. The best way to do it is to have a machine shop that uses a surdy to cut the seats. A surdy style machine, which is a special machine. Surdy is a brand, but they invented a type of machine to cut with a tool with a machining tool not grinding the seat but on a farm engine if the guy uses what they would call do a valve job with stones that's fine and that would be for the seat and then he has a valve like a quick way valve cutter that puts the angles back onto the valve in most ab- agricultural operations or like this the guy's going to put the standard angles on and that's fine all right but if you wanted to make a little bit more power those angles and the area in the in the seat is where you're going to find it but that's a a hot rod trick all right so we're not going to go in there now as far as the valve seats are concerned remember that's where the valve closes against the seats and then can then again like the guide could be integral which is in the cast iron cylinder head or they could be an insert that's pressed in. Now, if an integral on aluminum head, they always have inserts, all right? So if an, in an integral seat is extremely worn, burned or cracked, you get cracking the seat, then what happens is to fix that head, it's counterboard larger, and they put an insert in. Now, on a, on a stand, when they build a cast iron cylinder head, they induction harden the seat, as I said, and, and some some people may, some companies may induction harden around the guide. That I can't tell you, but on a cast iron cylinder head, they induction harden the seat. And induction harden is done is a heat treat process that's done with electricity, but it's able to pinpoint right that area. So if the valve seats are very worn, then what you're going to do is you're going to counter bore those out, and you're going to be putting a pressed in steel guide. I mean, steel in steel valve seat in there, and that 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 it's an interference fit that goes in there. So they they interference fit. Sometimes they'll they'll cool the seat and they'll heat the cylinder head and press it. And everybody has their own procedure, but there's a specified interference fit. It's not epoxied in there. It's not screwed in there. It's an interference fit. So, but the the standard getting back to the angles, the standard measure. Not measure the standard method 
two, I'm getting excited because I like cylinders, to install the valve angles and a number of them in the seat, as I said, is with a stone. All right, so keep that in mind. And, uh, you know, a, a better machine, and I don't want to say better machine shop, because you could do, a guy could do a wonderful job on your farm engine with stones. But, uh, you know, cutting the seat and installing multiple angles, what that does is that it gingerly, gingerly steers the air and uh anybody like i said who was a racer or a tractor pull guy knows what i'm talking about but you know as long as they do the job properly they cut the, they inspect the valves for where there's enough margin and they they put the valve angles on there they put the va- valve angles on the seat or replace the seat you're good to go so now when machining the cylinder head also keep in mind which a lot of quickie quickie stone that repair shops do not do is that it's essential very 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 essential that what we call the installed height of the valve spring is set properly along with the pressure you don't just take the springs out of the box and throw them in there all right and then what's going to happen is they're going to measure the installed height so the installed height of the valve is the valve when it's when it's fully up against the seat and it's fully up in the zone that and they measure with it there's, there's a couple of different ways to measure it. It's actually not, a, if you have the proper tool, it's very not, it's not complicated whatsoever. But the installed height is going to be very important. And then often what may happen is that they may need to cut the seats and the valves to alter ge- the, the geometry to get this correct. So if you're going to do valve springs, which if you have this zone that off, I suggest that you do valve springs because those valve springs are going to be very, very stressed from going up and down so many times. And you want to put this head back together and then you bust a valve spring, all right, uh, uh, shortly thereafter. Like I said, you want to put this, if you're that deep into the engine that you have this cylinder head off, you got to do this right because you want to put this back together and have no problems and have this engine run. So, Another thing that you have to keep in mind is that the parts of the cylinder head, such as the rocker arms, if it's a pusher motor, the valve springs, the locks, the retainers, they're all considered consumables along with the rocker mounting studs if used. So if you have, if the engine has rocker mounting studs. So then again, a proper cylinder head service replaces these with high quality and not inferior imported parts very 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 important the the machine shop could save a lot of money by not replacing those parts but they are all consumables and then again you have the cylinder head off so why do you not want to replace those parts and you want to buy a good quality part so don't be afraid to ask the machine shop what kind of parts they're going to use and the brand name and the internet is good for this stuff because I'm, I'm using dorman stuff so you could look it up or i'm using this company and then you could look look it up and see and get an idea for the feel of it and but m- most machine shops will do it right because they don't want this to come back and bite them but keep in mind that the industry protocol is that if something goes wrong with the cylinder head and you are an artist, you took it on and you put it off, they're going to say, all right, bring, pull the head off and bring it back to me and I'll change the rocker arm or I'll change the valve spring. All right, so they're not going to, so they, they, their exposure is limited because you took the head on and off. But then, like I said, I, I believe most people want to do the proper job, but this is a very easy way for the and and then again i don't really feel the machine shop is at fault 
You know, it's just like, you know, people come to our farm stand. I'm going to use this as an example before I get ready to close here. Is that, you know, people, and we're, we're pesticide-free, non-GMO corn. I am not against GMO corn whatsoever. I'm not against using any pesticides, what have you. We chose to use, a, to choose, we chose to raise a, a non-GMO corn, a traditional corn, because our audience, our customer base likes it. There's a lot of things, I said this many times before on the show, when you're doing fresh market sweet corn, it's a lot different than raising corn that goes into a, uh, into a grain elevator. So you have to be concerned with the, the appearance, the husk, what the husk looks like, what the silks look like. I've had people tell us they don't like our yellow to white corn ratio and we raise a bicolor. They don't like the way our silks look. They don't like our husks. All right, so all this comes into play. So it's a completely different animal than a guy raising 10,000 acres of corn that he's going to sell on the Chicago border tr- trade or he's going to put in a bin and try to market it. Completely different animal raising fresh market sweet corn when you're dealing with the consumer. If you're raising f- sweet corn and you're raising it for, for Libby's or for, for Green Giant, then they're usually dictating what procedures they want uh, and they're dictating the seed and what have you. But as far as this is concerned, so in essence, repeating once more, I'm not against any of that, but we chose to raise a non-GMO pesticide-free sweet corn. All right, so so the, the, the thing basically is that... Uh, but what happens is that because of that, right, as you know, anybody who listens to the show to raises, you, we may have earworms. I said in the beginning of the show, we had hardly any earworms this year. We had hardly any insect damage from that. All right, that we have some gossip that we have gossip's wilt that we have Stuart's wilt that we have, so we have every other wilt under the sun due to the conditions in the hailstorm i've said before a couple of weeks ago yes 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 but what happens is that you could tell so when somebody comes to the stand my wife or my sister or if i happen to be it says okay you know we're pesticide free non-gmo and the people oh that's why i'm here i love it i don't want any pesticides and uh, i said to them okay but what that means to you is that you may have some blight on the husk and you may have some insect damage on the tip that you have to cut off. And 99% of the people say, I'm fine with that. But you get a certain percentage of people that, ah, they scream like you're like bloody murder. I don't want any insects. I don't want that. All right, but then, then you have to have a corn that has some sort of insect insect protection you have to have a corn that's been sprayed for for fungus with fungicide and there's nothing wrong with that but that's not what i have here so in essence what i'm getting at is that you know reusing a lot of these consumable parts even though they may look okay is like buying a brand new pair of work boots and then taking your old worn laces out of the shoes that you're going to throw out and put them in the new shoes all right makes no sense whatsoever but then again it's a price sensitive market that's what i was telling you about the sweet corn not so much price sensitive but the consumer drives this and i tell people at the farm stand don't blame the farmer for using pesticides don't blame the farmer for you have planting in a, a gmo corn or a gmo wheat or whatever it may be 
don't blame blame them for that i said that market is those decisions are driven by you the consumer because you're not willing to accept the tomato with some blight on it or an apple with a little mark on it or an ear of corn that has an earworm on the top I, you know and there's such a crazy misconception they think that the farmer lives to to uh, to, to spray chemicals i said no there's no farmer in his right mind that wants to spend three four hundred thousand dollars for a high crop sprayer and a lot of money and diesel fuel and ride through his fields and spray this stuff i said but they're spraying it because you don't want to buy it the supermarket doesn't want to buy it the canner doesn't want to buy it and somebody opens up the can of sweet corn and 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 then there's an earworm in there and they and they, they sue everybody and so i said the consumer is driving it and the reason why i'm saying this this guy's going nuts on this is that the consumer drives oftentimes drives the decision that the machine shop makes with the cylinder head service because they say oh well you know hey if i don't if, if these rocker arms look all right the engine doesn't have that many hours these uh, many miles on it. these push rods look all right this looks all right all right and they and they try to put the old part they put the old parts back in to bring the price down because it's such a price competitive market all right the thing is that it's it's not good you want quality you want this con- they're considered consumable parts and you don't want them to be stressed and put it back together and have a problem and the other thing is that you have to keep in mind that when you put this head back on so you got it from the machine shop all right is that you must use new head bolts you don't want to reuse head bolts because they've been stressed from the thermal cycling again they've been stressed from the clamping a lot of modern engines they use torque to yield head bolts so you better look in the shop manual if you're the one who's installing it if it's a torque to yield bolt then you need that you you need to have new bolts of course also but you need a torque angle gauge to tighten that so it'll be so many foot pounds 70 foot pounds and 13 degrees 50 15 degrees of rotation very very important because that clamping force on that gasket is going to be all determined by that by that cylinder head bolt and you do not reuse those are great bolts to throw in the bin for something else to throw in your bolt bin use it on the disc arrow use it on something else great bolts but keep in mind that a cylinder head that is treated to the proper procedures by the machine shop is going to provide trouble-free service for many many years all right but the thing that you need to understand is that it is your goal is to not ever have to take that cylinder head off an engine and if you don't and the way you the way you achieve that goal is to keep the coolant up to snuff right and don't overheat it if you keep the coolant up to snuff don't overheat it and if you have a boosted application you know you get a you get a tuner and a pickup truck it's uh, you know you put that calibration and i am the hot rod farmer i'm not against that right but the fact that matters you turn that boost up you turn that fuel up all right you're you're making more cylinder pressure more heat more stress you're not going to see that in a temperature gauge but and i've discussed this many times on the show is that what you have to be concerned with is the metal surface temperature of the cylinder head oftentimes an elevated metal surface temperature on the cylinder head for a short excursion is never going to translate to you seeing any tangible on the liquid temperature gauge and even if your engine has a metal surface your 
have equipment has a metal surface temperature gauge for it, which a lot of farm equipment, a lot of industrial engines do, is that you may, where the sending unit is, it may not go up that much, but that bridge area between the two valves is where it's going to see extreme heat. So it's just like anything. If you go in your house or you go into a grain bin, well, let's go into the house, it's a better up with an infrared temperature gun and you shoot this room, shoot that room, shoot this wall, you're going to see temperature variation. So keep in mind that that cylinder head temperature gauge, if you have one on your equipment, is not going, is only going to show an area where they're measuring the temperature. So it doesn't mean that you cannot have elevated temperatures elsewhere on that cylinder head. And keep in mind that the combustion chamber is the hottest part and it's going to take the most abuse and it's also going to be the valves and the combustion chamber. It's hard to believe this, as I said earlier on in the show today, is gonna be chemically attacked by the byproducts of combustion. So this cylinder head, this zone that gets a lot of abuse but the good part about it as i said you don't cook it you don't run it too lean you don't over boost it and you keep the coolant up to snuff and let it do its job then you will be a stranger to what that zone that looks like and trust me that is what you want that's something that you do not want to get intimate with specifically on a big piece of farm equipment or, or like in a combine or a sprayer where it's no picnic to pull that cylinder head off so if you have any questions any concerns want to argue with me please feel free to reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farm machinery digest.com so now that i hit you hard with cylinder heads come on in text we're gonna get ready for the toolbox test here Alrighty, text. Thank you so much. All right, so here's our toolbox test. Okay, it's hot out there, and you are mowing hay with an old open platform Ford tractor. When you see your wife heading over in the UTV, she brought you a jug of ice cold lemonade. You shut off the tractor and take a few minutes to talk with her and enjoy the cold drink. You need to get back to work, so she heads to the house, and you jump back on the tractor and crank it over. The engine cranks fine but will not start. You check things over and all looks fine. All you see is a cloud of dust from her heading home and there is no way to contact her. Forced with no choice but to wait, about one hour later the engine fires right up and runs perfectly. You get done with the hay but would like to know what happened. They're ready farmer a says that the most like that most likely the fuel shutoff mechanism in the injection pump stuck when it got hot and that is why the engine would not restart farmer b told you that the battery must be weak even though you said the engine cranked over properly farmer c says that with it so hot outside the engine oil must have overheated and the piston rings lost their seal until it cooled down and farmer d wants you to believe that you were having heat stroke and you did something wrong all right there's always a there's always a farmer d right he's always going to blame you and blame something else same blame something else so uh you think about that while i answer 
Franks from Arizona's letter. He says, my 2008 Chevy pickup with a 5.3 V8 is bucking under load and the service engine soon light is flashing. Any ideas? Thanks. Well, the thing keep to keep in mind is that when you have a, a OBD2 vehicle, which is 2006 on up gasoline, uh, not actually not 2000, 1996 on up, good God. I can't believe it's that long ago. Is that whenever the the service engine soon light starts to flash to you, that's indicating a problem that has the ability to impact negatively to hurt the catalytic converter. So if you have the service engine soon light come on and it comes on solid, then that's a fault area that has does not have the ability to hurt the catalytic converter. And historically, if you, you have some type of misfire, what's going to happen is that the misfire means that you're not burning the fuel and you're going to douse the catalytic converter with a high level of hydrocarbons, which is unburned fuel, and that is going to end up superheating the converter and it could end up damaging it. So the idea that the, that the truck is bucking under load and the service engine soon light is flashing, it's showing that this is causing a potential problem that's going to hurt the catalytic converter so you don't want to do that because on an engine like that it could possibly have four catalysts because it could have it's a v8 engine so it's a v-shaped engine you have two on one bank two on the other could be very very expensive not good all right you didn't give me a, a lot to go by here but i believe a 2000 excuse me 2008 5.3 a Chevy engine is a coil-on-plug design, has multiple coils, a coil for each cylinder. What you need to do with this is you first need to read whatever trouble codes are in there. What you're going to have to do is if you don't have a scanner, you're going to go into town to one of the, like O'Reilly's Auto Parts, Advanced Auto, all those big box stores, auto parts stores, usually offer free service that they'll come out and they'll have some guy who knows nothing at all, but he has the scanner and he'll plug the scanner in the dashboard and he will tell you what the trouble code is. Now, keep in mind, that's probably going to be a misfire code, say misfire cylinders two and six, misfire the cylinder one, what it may be. All right, so the thing is that it's going to be able to recognize that. So that's your first step, what you're going to need to do. And then at that particular point, you're going to, now keep in mind that a trouble code on any system doesn't say that is bad, that's a circuit code. So there's a problem in that circuit. And most likely, and if it's a misfire code, it's usually an ignition problem, but doesn't have to be ignition problem. So based upon shooting from the hip here, because that's all I could do, because you didn't give me a lot of information, because you don't have a lot of information. The fact of the matter is, empirically knowing those engines, I would say if it's a coil-on-plug design, has multiple coils, that it has a bad ignition coil, and the coil does not have enough capacity to fire the spark plug and keep the spark plug arcing for a certain length of time under load, and it's extinguishing the flame and it's setting the misfire code. And the way it, just as an aside, the way it determines a misfire is that there is a sensor on the crankshaft and it looks at the crankshaft acceleration on each power pulse. So there's a cam sensor and a crank sensor. So it knows when each cylinder is going to fire. And then it looks at the rate of acceleration on the crankshaft if it has a proper 
expansion of proper firing event, the crank is going to accelerate at a certain rate. If it doesn't have a proper firing rate, it's going to not accelerate at that same rate, and that's how it's determining a misfire. So most likely, it has a bad coil, but there are other things that could be happening that it could have a, a leaky intake manifold gasket. It could have it injected with a poor spray pattern on it. You didn't say how the engine idles. What you really need to do at this particular point it respectfully it's like riding by a field of a crop a soybean field corn field whatever i'd say that plant doesn't look good well what's wrong with it well you know there are some telltale signs of nitrogen but you know uh, is the nitrogen there and being tied up who knows so what you really need to do your fir- you really need at this particular point is not to throw parts at it you need to be able to try to determine what is going on with it and that would be your first step or just bring it to a shop that you feel has proper diagnostic abilities and just like the machine shops i'm talking about every shop that has a scanner doesn't necessarily every shop that has has a has a has, has a, a valve and a valve grinder doesn't not a great machine shop because you have a valve grinder so you may want to ask around and bring it to somebody or bring it to the dealer and get it fixed before you cause more damage right so i wish i could have been a more help but get back to our toolbox test question before before we close here farm array is on the money it is an old tractor and in many instances this is not just with ford all right with any brand the fuel shut off may not have released in the injection pump keeping the engine starved for fuel under heat soak all parts expand and that most likely provoked it you can try running a good cleaner through the system by adding it to the fuel along with a lubricity supplement but it is common <clears throat> but if it becomes common the pump needs to go to the shop and be taken apart to see what is going on so most likely what has happened you shut the engine off the engine the injection pump temperature elevated went on the heat so because the cooling system was no longer running operating you had a nice glass of cold iced tea with your wife you gave her a kiss you sent her back to the farmhouse you went to go start it if this happens again what you could do is take a, a take a wrench or a screwdriver and gently tap the pump all right uh but when it cooled off the 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 it, it contracted and it freed up and that's why it most likely started that is the most likely cause from the four choices that we were given and it is common with older pump line nozzle diesel engines as they get a lot of years and a lot of mile miles years of and hours of use on them so listen i want to thank you so much for tuning in and know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and please keep even though i didn't do it again this week please keep those push pins coming and let me know where you listen and i would be i would be honored to put a pin in my map with your name on it and remember around the world we want to fill up that world map too have a blessed week take care thank you bye-bye